Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Verge Network, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, a subsidiary network of the Vox Media. That's the beginning of the show. I'm Neelai. I am your friend. <laughs> so I want to be clear about that. Paul. Hi, Paul. Hello. Dieter. I, I could be your friend, but there's no guarantee. Okay, when you have good cop, bad cop, what's the tertiary cop? The third cop. Third cop? <laughs> third cop. Moo cop. <laughs> Which way? Wild like cop. cow, not like moo cow. Wild moo like Jap- Japanese, not just, yeah, never mind. Moo cop? Yeah, moo. All right. It is a week. Here's what's going to happen on this on this broadcast. Mm. We have a ton of news. Dieter has an emotional roller coaster to go on with the oh MacBook Pro. We've got This Week in Culture with Megan Frokmanesh and Bijan Steven bringing that one back. Super excited. I interviewed Anthony Wood, the CEO of Roku. That interview was wild. That interview literally began in a way that I just was not what was not expecting. He, he claimed that he runs the flagship podcast? Yeah, he was like, hello, and welcome to the Vergecast. Did he keep like, undercutting <laughs> you on price? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like $17. No way! No, he, he, uh, you'll, you'll hear it later on the show, but he laid out exactly how Roku makes money in like a very calm way. He, he's obviously a very good CEO. He's like, here's what Roku does. And he was just very clear that Roku does not is not a hardware business. Huh. They are an advertising business. But you, you, we'll get to that in the show. So that's, and I asked him about Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, of course. Of course um, you did. Uh, Paul's segment is sponsored once again. We're going we're gonna to try that. Still socks. <laughs> for a second time. So we're, let's just get into it. Biggest news. We missed this on the 4th of July. Go90 is dead. I just People have been asking me to talk about it. But Verizon's Go90, the streaming service that asked you to go sideways. Is, is now permanently horizontal. It has fallen sideways into the grave. Some of my favorite shows are going off the air. Uh, relationship status. Confess. Well, we have to be nice because there's an SP Nation show. Snatchers. The SP Nation show is very good. I'm sure it is. Foul Play, which you, just, if you go and go 90 while you can and watch SP Nation's Foul Play. It is very good. Well, no, um, but Verizon said that they're giving the IP back for all the shows back to the creators. Yeah, oh, so cool. they're not just shutting it down. Like all the stuff that was made for it, they're like, "Yeah, do whatever you want with it. We don't care anymore." Um, <laughs> just like a total capitulation. I just don't. Here's what I want: the so it's dead. I think Verizon's future is like a media tech business, the way AT and T bought Time Warner. Mm. Verizon bought AOL. Yeah, and Yahoo. <laughs> 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 so like they made different purchases. There was a great story in the information about whether that's going to keep going, whether Tim Armstrong, who is Paul and I's old boss at AOL, yeah. whether he's going to try to spin AOL, Yahoo, Oath back out of Verizon, which would be incredible. So yeah, it's just I just want to. Here's my okay, real problem. Here's a pitch. I don't have a go-to here's bad a streaming service anymore. Bring back dial-up, like a a new hip internet service that's dial-up for people who feel over overconnected, overstimulated. Yeah. You know, it's Flip like phones a, and dial-up. Hipster internet, the new AOL. I feel like that's a good name for like a New York restaurant, Flip Phones and Dial-up. Mm. So we do have a good go-to bad streaming service to to make fun of, but the problem is with Go90 you were punching up, right? You're you were you were attacking Verizon when you attacked Go90 and that felt good, but nobody feels good making fun of Crackle. No, but Crackle Sony. <laughs> you can make fun of Crackle. Oh. Also, okay, I think yeah, Crackle's crackle. dead. Screw you, Crackle. 
I'm pretty sure Crackle's Sony. No, Crackle's uh, still around, man. Is Crackle still around? It's as yeah, long as, as Crackle's long as, official name, by the way, is Sony Crackle. As so. long as Sony <laughs> is manufacturing the most adorable robot dog in the universe, I do not approve. Subsidized by Crackle. I really um, hope Crackle shuts down because my headline will be, "Oh snap, Crackle popped." Just giving away the gold eater. So this was supposed to be like a two-minute joke. Yep. It's turned into a okay. five-minute disaster right. with a pun. I'm ready to move on. Uh, anytime. I want to. We have. There's actually a lot to talk about in the show this week, and I personally find Facebook policy news exhausting and depressing. But I want to tell you. So we're we're just not going to do it. But I want to tell you, go listen to Kara Swisher interview Mark Zuckerberg on Recode Decode. It's 90 minutes long. Zuckerberg puts his foot in his mouth several times, including yeah. suggesting that Holocaust deniers are maybe just innocently mistaken, which is very strange and wrong. But it's Kara at her best, Zuckerberg at a, a, a medium. A medium. <laughs> medium Zuck. Medium Can I Zuck. say, just, I know we, can't, we don't have time to really get into it, but I'm going to say one thing after I disclose my wife works for Oculus, which is invented at Facebook, as you listen to this interview and listen to Zuck try and like justify his decisions, in the back of your mind, just if you studied philosophy, just think, oh, he's a he's a rule he has he follows a rule based ethics. He's 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 a Kantian. He's trying to find the categorical imperative. Just think about Kant's ethics as you're listening to Mark Zuckerberg, and think mm. about how he's doing it right and how he's doing it wrong. I've I, what I thought about was this would be a lot better if Zuckerberg would just accept the fact that he's a dictator as opposed to trying to be like a friend. Mm. But do you want him to be the dictator? Well, at least I would know how it worked. You know, like mm. he's going to make decisions and it'll be arbitrary and capricious because he's a dictator. But if we all supplicate ourselves to him enough and we're like, <laughs> I also smoked brisket, Lord Zuck. Sing, <laughs> sing songs about our glorious Zuckerberg. Yeah. And be like, he'll, he'll be nice to us <laughs> as opposed to this thing he's doing where he's like, I'm just your buddy Zuck. Neil, I heard he's always been nice to us. <laughs> All right. Listen to that. I can't. I honestly. And if you are interested in what's going on with Facebook, uh, Casey's newsletter, The Interface, is excellent. You can read that every day. There's just so much for this episode of The Vergecast. We're, we're just going to set it aside. So go listen to Rico Decode, Kara and Zuck. Uh, read The Interface from Casey. Tweet, tweet at Casey. He likes your tweets. You can get all that stuff there. Okay. Let's start with the biggest news of the week in our zone. Uh, which is Google and Android in the European Union. So the European Union fined Google $5 billion. It's the largest fine in EU history for illegally bundling Chrome and Search into Android for a period of years for its three points. Bundling of Chrome and Search, it is preventing other manufacturers from forking Android. So you can obviously Android is open source. If you want to make an open source fork of Android, you are prevented. Google will contractually not let you use Android. So if you want to be an Android manufacturer... You mean use the name Android? No, no, no. If you want to get or the... use Play Store. If you want to use the Play Store, you cannot ship yeah. even a single forked Android device. So they, they, they pull you into their ecosystem. And then the third thing, which honestly to me is like in this world that we live in, is like, <laughs> sure, Google made payments to certain large manufacturers and mobile network operators operators to bundle Google search apps on the handsets in favor of our search engines, which is like, yeah, of course they did. <laughs> Why would they need that's to what, pay that's if, what everybody does. if they're forcing everybody? Because uh, if you sell a Tizen handset, right? Yeah. 
and you, you set Google as the default, you get paid. Like, there's a million little wackadoo things. Oh, in so there. this like includes like Apple. Uh, well, no, Apple sets it as the default, and I think Apple makes payments to Google, but for setting it as the default. So it, it's unclear. It just says certain large manufacturers, hmm. and it's yeah. like there's like four of them, right? So probably those four. Okay, so let's pull this apart. So I, I read a bunch of the the. The EU issued a bunch of documents. I read a bunch of documents. Basically, their argument is that Android's business model is fundamentally unfair and that Google, by pulling lots and lots of core features and updated APIs out of Android and into Play services, obviously brought the app developers along there, and then they uncompetitively tied and like the use of Android to the use of the Play Store. So if you want to ship an Android phone and get the Play Store, which is where the apps are, which is the thing you want, you are now bound to this other contract, which makes you use Search and Chrome by default. I think it's the specific contractual language that EU called out was within one swipe of the home screen, you've got to see Google stuff. We have actually known this for a long time, right? This is mm-hmm. not a surprise. The way that Google uses the Play Store and Play Services to drive Android, I think we have actually talked about on the show as a good idea, like a lot. Well, it's a good idea in so far as it's the easiest avenue that Google has to get updates, security updates, and other like little updates out to phones without waiting for, you know, carriers and OEMs to push out full-on operating system updates. And it's also a really good system insofar as it lets them update apps without waiting for like a yearly cycle, the way that Apple does with uh, with iOS in a lot of ways for its core apps. And so there's that. So that is good. Uh, I would say that I am not necessarily pro like put everything into the Google Play services thing because the more of the core of what you expect your phone to do coming from a Google thing instead of from an Android thing like it does mean that AOSP phones and forks of Android don't get the benefit of that stuff so I'm I don't know there was there was a whole kerfuffle when they got rid of the like a AOSP browser and went to like Chrome as the default renderer and that basically was the right thing to do because it meant they didn't have to ship two web browsers but it's still like it's it's a good thing that they that they do it from a bunch of technical reasons. It just so happens that it also um, get you know makes Android more of a Google product than it is just a product from HTC or Samsung or Amazon or whatever. But I would take you back to I don't know 2009 when wave after wave of Android phone with a garbage skin would come out, and we would laugh at how bad all of that work was, and. I, you know, part of it is Google pushing manufacturers to stop doing that stuff. Part of it is honestly the market. Like every time we review a phone, we're like, it's as close to stock Android as you can get without buying a Pixel. Like it's the thing that the market has wanted. So Google saying we're just going to foreclose some of this crazy wide open development on Android has actually been the the positive consumer outcome. Yeah. What is the the consumer harm that they're alleging? So the the consumer harm they're alleging is exactly what you'd expect. It's um, the market for search engines and default browsers on Android is extremely limited. So consumers don't have a choice to buy a phone that has Bing preloaded because Google restricts that from happening. I'm not sure that anybody wants to buy a phone with Bing preloaded, but <laughs> <laughs> I have argued specifically that it, that's consumer hostile. But yeah, but the market the, that market is foreclosed, so Google just won't let that exist. You can't buy a phone with a different browser preloaded, right? Th- those are the two. 
and the the mechanism is if you want to use Android and you want to get the Play Store, which is the only reason you want to use Android to ship a phone because you want the apps, you have to do these other two things. So the the market for the other two things has closed down. Now the the underneath all of that is Google doesn't charge any money for Android. They don't charge any money for the Play Store. They make all their money from search. So if they don't have those apps on the phone as default, they are not going to make money giving away Android and Play Store for free. So like yeah. that led Sundar Pichai yesterday. The, the the you know the EU ruling came out within ninety days. Google has to pay the fine. They have to stop bundling these things. Sundar Pichai says, "Well, this might change the business model of Android. We might have to start charging for Android to recoup that investment." Yeah. That to me seems like a totally idle threat for for this specific reason. Well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Microsoft charged licensees for Windows Mobile a bunch. Like, well, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So they might do it. We're they might do it, and I, 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 they might charge five, ten, twenty. I don't know what the Windows Mobile license costs, but it, all that cost went to the manufacturer, and then they pass it on to the consumer. And if they decided they needed to do that for whatever reason, I do like connecting manufacturers have to pay for Android to this ruling is a little bit fuzzy to me. But whatever, like who are people? Like, well, I, I want the free one. I don't want to pay for Android. What are they going to go to? Tizen? Like they could, they could. They, there is a world in which they could charge manufacturers to license Android and put it on phones, and it wouldn't necessarily hurt them because there's no other choice anymore. That seems like a lot. I mean, it's a good, I don't know if it's a valid threat, but it's a real good threat from Google's perspective. <laughs> yeah. Because if you, if Google's like, oh, oh, we're not allowed to do this stuff, okay, it's $100 to license Android. So here's why I think it's what particularly is, not a valid threat. What is anybody that, – that's way more damaging. But, like, Google's within its right to do that, right? Sure. Google's within its right to do things that are way more damaging to consumers so the, than this stuff. Well, maybe. Because it's not like the E went away. They're not like, well, our, our work here is done. I mean, you right? have a like, whole industry of manufacturers who are billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in to, to Android. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, if Google vastly changed how it supported Android or it's like, hey, we decided we're going to stop developing it. We're just done. <laughs> like that would ruin a lot of companies. <laughs> yeah, it would also ruin Google, right? I mean, that search revenue for mobile is no joke, mm-hmm. right? That's their business. So they, they need Android out there. They need Chrome out there. They need search out there. I'm sure they're going to start making other kinds of deals. Mm-hmm. Where they'll just pay the manufacturers to put. Well, right. I thought they got in trouble for making payments to certain large manufacturers. Because I think those payments were conditioned on other terms. But like, if it's just a free market and they just pay more than Microsoft, right. it's not like Microsoft is like, yeah, we'll spend some of that hot Bing revenue. <laughs> like they'll they'll cut their revenue. I think the real the real opportunity here is inside of the forks. So now you've got Samsung in a position where. It can just fork Android and make another thing, even though it has Tizen. You've got LG in a position where it can fork Android and make another thing. It sounds like Amazon's going could get Play Store on the Fire tablets, right? Well, no. that, that to me is a big question: is are those forks going to get access to the Play Store? Like that, it's not clear to me that the EU is demanding that they do that. It's right. like the, they're the a specific. Possible, go ahead, Dieter. They're they're leaving like the remedy up to Google. They're like, here's the stuff you shouldn't be doing. Do something else. 
and let us know in 90 days what your plan is. But they're not saying you're you like with Microsoft. They're like, all right, Microsoft, you must have a ballot when and people you must randomly show different browsers at the you know first time someone logs into Windows and let them choose. And you know they like specifically told Microsoft what to do. The EU here is saying, hey, yeah, uh, you can't demand that people include Chrome and Search if they want the Play Store. And you can't do these other things. So stop doing that. Tell us what you're going to do instead. And so that doesn't necessarily mean they're going, like, one of the remedies is going to be you have to let the Play Store show up on, you know, Fire TVs. Yeah, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I do think because Amazon, Amazon, like, putters along with Fire OS, it's like not a, they, they make basically kids' tablets with it, right? Now they have this opportunity to say, hey, HTC. Not a lot going on over there. Would you like to make a Fire OS device? HTC can make their phones, and they can make a range of devices running Fire OS that runs Amazon Store, and that could turn into something else. Because just just to clarify, because I was confused on this, the specific restriction that Google was saying, if you do any forked device, you can't do any uh, Any play device. Any play device. So you can't can't ship even a single product running a forked version of Android if you want the Play Store. And that was to ostensibly to minimize fragmentation. And Google brought up fragmentation to the EU, which is just another one of those moments where like just the nerdiest tech blog shit is now being talked about at the highest levels of government. But they're like, Android fragmentation is a problem. And the EU said, we don't believe Android fragmentation is credible, which is true. <laughs> what, is, what is the law? <laughs> what, 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 I, I, I kind of feel like I need to read this, but like, what kind of laws do they have in the EU? Is it just it feels unfair to us? I mean, like, I'm not a European lawyer and very I'm a arbitrary bad American lawyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I mean, like they their anti competition laws are the same. They they went and measured consumer harm and they went and measured harm in the marketplace. And Google said we're preventing this other thing and this outweighs that harm you see over there. Mm-hmm. And then they made a determination of credibility. So you can read it. It's just gonna, it's just it's going to make reference to like a lot of laws you've never heard of because you don't live in Europe, mm-hmm. right? But it the, it tracks with what you would expect. And I, I think a big piece of this, like Trump tweeted about it today, like the European Union is attacking us today. But a big piece of it is like this is America's home team. Mm. Like in the yep. United States, like Google and Facebook and Apple, like they're the, they're the home team. So regulating them feels... Like an, like their argument is if you take away this regular you, you won't get this like you like this right you, for Google in Europe like Europe has always looked at these big tech companies as like you're what are you doing like this isn't competitive we don't want this to happen we want French search engines and German search engines and so I think they're much they're looking at that kind of market dynamic where Google has come into their country through the the mechanism of the internet and they've dominated the field and there's not space for their own countries to develop that that economy. And I think that's super interesting. So they just get to take $5 billion from an American Google's company. Google's going to make $5 billion in, yeah, in, in but six that's, days. It's, uh, that's, that's, it's true, though. That's six days of their revenue. I don't know. It's a lot of money to just be able to, to take for... I, I, I'm well, no, it's the fine, right? Like the, the idea is that you punish them and then they won't do it again and other actors well, won't do why it. Why can't they pass a law that says Google can't, or, or sorry, arbitrary companies, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, can't force <laughs> other companies. But they did. To do. That, then they, Google broke the law. 
They had specific laws that would have applied to these. Yes. It's not like they just like swept. The European Union is not like a swift, decisive body. Right. Like it is a very ponderous, slow. We've issued a joint resolution that will now be taken up by the Council of Elders. The Council of Elders has issued a secondary resolution that will be passed down to the Council of Lowers. The Lowers have decided to play cricket for five just, days. Like the, it's like a very ponderous body. This is four or five years in the making. So like uh, the idea that this is just like a, a capricious decision. Is like out of that context. Like, like this went on long enough that at the beginning of it, Microsoft was like pushing for it and lobbying for it. And now, now they've gotten to the point where like they've made nice with Google about some patent, some other patent disputes. And so they're like, they're staying out of it now. It went yeah. from like a thing that Microsoft was pushing hard for to like it went on long enough that they're like, yeah, you know what? We, we figured it out on our own. You guys. You guys do your thing. Yeah, if you're slower than a patent dispute, <laughs> it's like you're slow. <laughs> like you're not. You're just not moving fast. The best outcome is like Google pays the money, whatever. They'll make it back in six days, and then you're going to see the sort of ecosystem of Android vendors start to do more interesting things because they're no longer locked into doing what Google wants them to do. It's mm. a good outcome. The bad outcome, I think, is. Then they will stop doing what Google wants them to do. And their history of decision making is not excellent. Right. And so you're going to get a lot more blooping sounds as default <laughs> on a, a wide variety of smart devices that aren't necessarily as secure as, as like a, a play device. So it's going to break. Bing everywhere. I, and if you're Microsoft, this is your opportunity. If you're Amazon, this is your opportunity. But I think creating. The fine aside, creating the opportunity for these companies to compete again is not a bad thing, right? It's the mechanism of how you create that opportunity. Like the market wasn't creating that mechanism because Google had the market. So this is the remedy to open Google the market. Built the market. Well, not, I mean, sort of. They made an operating system and they gave it away for free. And people are just sort being of. big whiners about it. They sort of gave it <laughs> they away. They could always for free. use Tizen. <laughs> What was it? Me Migo? What was that other one? Oh man, Migo. Right. This is this is revenge for Migo. Look, Finland's not in the U, but this is revenge for Migo. That's what it is. <laughs> That's all this is. Okay, two questions. Yeah. Yeah. Can you name one person who works at the EU who is not uh, actually in charge? I could say any name I wanted to right now. <laughs> I know. I know. Sven's can... Forglung. <laughs> I'm just saying this is an un unaccountable body. No, it's not. If you were in Europe, you would know these things. I don't know. We have Europeans so. on our team. You could select them right now. I'll do. I'll do that after the podcast. We'll see. We'll see <laughs> who whom they know. You start who is who's your European? local EU representative? Um, second question: If I wrote a surprisingly popular new operating system yeah. and I wrote uh, a, a, a relatively liberal license for it that allows you to do anything for it but with some certain conditions uh, that I made up arbitrarily mm -hmm. like uh, if you do weird things with this you, you can't use the vanilla version so here, here's the thing if you start there I think you're fine the thing Google did was they they changed it so they began moving entrapment. They began right. So they had this huge network effect of Android users. They were dominant. You have to ship Android to get market share. Again, if you're in the EU, you're you're looking at Finland. 
You're like, there's a burning platform over there, right? Like, ah, oh, shit. What's all like, that smoke in the sky? Oh, it's Miko. Oh, it's all of Finland. Uh, but you have to use Android to get the thing. And then Google makes the switch in large part in response to people like us complaining about fragmentation and security updates. They make the switch to say, if you want Android, you have to use Play. And you have to use Play services. You know. Ours Technica calls foul because you know it's against the the spirit of open source and like there's been lots of great Ars Technica articles about it, but that's really the outcome for them. But they switched the license term and they started moving all of their API development, all of their innovation into play services. And so that means they 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 took the market and they turned it to their advantage as opposed to entering the market and saying, this is the deal. But right? the other thing to really remember here is this isn't really about Android. They're, this is about Android insofar as they feel like Google used Android to prop up its search monopoly. So they did this thing, they did this stuff to Android, and they're not, they're not happy about it. But they, they see that it was they did it to prop up search. The reason that Chrome is like the thing here is Chrome is a avenue to search. And so this is as much about Bing and DuckDuckGo and whatever as it is about you know Migo or Tizen or whatever else. All of Finland. They're trying to get Finland into you. This is how they're doing it. Like we avenged you. Join <laughs> our customs sure protocal. There's other about, things in Finland. I just I, I'm sure. Sure. I'm a, a DuckDuckGo user. Are you? Yeah. I just feel like it's very rebellious of me. And apparently EU approves. <laughs> Oh my God. All right. <laughs> One more Google thing, and then we got to take a break. Uh, big Bloomberg report today about Fuchsia, its OS under development. We've kind of known about this, right? I mean, it's been out. Dieter came on Circuit Breaker Live when we were doing Circuit Breaker Live and literally did like a conspiracy theory yarn board about Fuchsia. Yeah. But Dieter, can, can you walk me through this? So, very good report over at Bloomberg, and it seems like it mostly came from the engineers that are working on it and like actual. Google executives who would like greenlight stuff and decide what they're going to do with this are very noncommittal about it. And whether they're noncommittal because they're lying or they're noncommittal because they're actually noncommittal uh, is an open question. Um, but it seems like the engineers are like, look, we're making this thing. It's great. Uh, it could be used for anything. It could be used for everything. It could power phones and TVs and gadgets and smart home things. And like this, sh this should replace Android um, and Chrome OS and everything else. And then the executives are like, yeah, I don't know. We got some ideas. We got some. We'll see. And then the 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 killer line at the at the end of it is. I mean, it's going to take three to five years for this to happen if it does happen. But then the killer line at the end of it is um, one person who has spoken to Fuchsia staff described the effort as simply quote It's a senior engineer retention project. Wow. So there's a bunch of really cool smart people who wanted to do something cool and smart. Um, Android. I don't know. I. Maybe this is not fair anymore, but it has a reputation for being kind of rickety, being kind of like deep down in its bones, not really modern and, and cool. And this is built on an entirely different kernel. So like theoretically could be a very interesting new operating system. Paul, you wrote this in the newsletter. And so everybody in the community like wants to pin all their hopes and dreams on what this thing will be. And so they, you know, the, it's just very hard to suss out what it's going to be because I don't it doesn't seem to me like there's like a secret high level Illuminati plan for Fuchsia. I think it's some people wanted to make a thing. They got they got nothing else to do. They might bail if they can't do it. It seems like a good idea to try and make a new cool operating system on a good modern kernel and you know good architecture etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know what? Go ahead. Go ahead folks. Go do that. 
and a bunch of people are working on it. And you know, if they're working on it just to make something cool, if they're working on it as like the goal to completely replace Android someday, I think it's very difficult to separate out uh, people's like hopes and dreams that they can just like project onto this thing from what any actual long-term plans are. And since this is Google, there may not be any actual long-term plans because Google does weird random crap all the time. I think there's a, the two interesting things for me with Fuchsia. I, they are do seem to be, and they have like a lot of like former WebOS type people trying to like reinvent what a, a computer interface would be like and like make it story based. And it's really hard to tell if any of that will pan out at all. That's But that's really fun experimentation. I think the most uh, really applicable thing that I think Fuchsia could offer that is very hard for Linux is because it's kind of a microkernel, a lot of the like drivers, hardware support is out of the kernel. And for supporting new hardware, it's a lot cheaper and safer with this kind of design theoretically if it works out and they can build it to be as as you know powerful as linux in other ways uh, being able to like a big problem with like uh getting your getting a new device to run android or chrome os it's whatever hardware you've put in that box you need good linux drivers and writing good linux drivers involves basically working with the linux kernel and it's it's messy and it's it's difficult and it's expensive and time consuming and that's where like security vulnerabilities show up so you have a potential for a lot more i feel like more rapid iteration and more rapid adoption of new hardware if if an operating system like this was on the market that that's to me i feel like the biggest upside of fuchsia i just how many times in my life can I be asked to be excited about a new operating system? Every day. I mean, potentially. But, but but hang on. That's not fair at all. When's the last time you've been asked to be excited about a new operating system? Like, at most, things are coming I'm along not say, a No, no, wait. Hold like on. I'm not years. saying it's happened three, recently. Every three years. I'm saying five years ago, it was like every day, and we had to like we had to like manage all of our hopes and dreams and expectations about Windows Phone, Mamo, which turned into Mego. Yeah. Right? Like- the new BlackBerry OS is here, and like we know all of the problems with these things, and the, the this Fuchsia piece didn't answer like the most important question, which is will Android apps run on this operating system, right? Like, will it have a Gmail app? Is like not yet known, mm-hmm. and like that's the stuff that actually makes this stuff successful or not. If it turns into Google's smart devices like operating system, great, that's cool. But I, I think the idea that Google's going to re Rearchitect or replace Android with Fuchsia is like staring at the same problems that stare at, you know, Apple's going to replace replace OS seven with Copeland in like nineteen ninety eight. Like it's the same set of problems, hmm. and we know what those transitions look like. Maybe I'm just being crusty. If you're a teenager listening to this, please by all means be extremely excited about a new operating system. You, you got t- about ten years of that in your life, and then you can like be a crank like me. I mean, Copeland was great. One of the greatest <laughs> moments in my life of following technology is when, I mean, I was sad. I thought Apple was going to buy BOS and that was going to be the next thing. And then they bought Steve Jobs' next. Yeah. And then they, they're like, yo, we're going to redo our operating system. And it's going to be bonkers. And it was bonkers. It was constantly bonkers. Yeah. What? You're going to put stoplights on the close <laughs> buttons? Well, you can make that like whoosh animation. Yeah. 
like th- those icons, they're so large. They're like photographs. <laughs> like I just, I don't know. I, I have such a fond memory of that like moment of like seeing everything that was very familiar to me, like change. Mm-hmm. And I always want to see it again. <laughs> yeah. I just, so that's Windows Phone, right? Like what, I, what I'm getting at is Windows Phone like had this new idea mm-hmm. about how you should use a phone. Like a deeply new idea. And many of those ideas were great. Mm-hmm. And many of those ideas are in every other phone now. They were just subsumed yep. in other operating systems in a way that I think is very healthy. Mm-hmm. But the thing of Windows Phone was not successful. Right. And like that's, I think that's the thing about few. Like they, they weren't replacing. My, my caution is up. Yeah. yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. Like, I was going to say they weren't replacing a successful phone yeah. with Windows Phone, but they did screw up their desktop by trying to do that to their desktop. So, yeah, it's dangerous. I will say this. Um, Nest was, like, fully rolled into Google this week. Yeah. Uh, they The CEO of Nest was ushered out the door. Rishi Chandra, who runs Google Home, now oversees the whole Nest team. It's all part of the same group. This is the sort of thing where if you want to see a bunch of new Nest devices, you've got a new kind of operating system that's like ready to go that isn't as heavy as Android. Mm. Uh, they One, it's not ready to go, well, I don't you know, think. And two, years. they've already got an operating system to do that. It's called Android Things. <laughs> Is it really? Yes. <laughs> the new uh, smart displays that are due out this summer run it that we saw at CES. All right, those. That's really cool. Where are those? They're due this summer. All right. All right, it's time for an ad. Then we're going to run This Week in Culture with Megan and Bajan. It's going to blow your mind. Mm. Then we're going to come back. And we got to talk about these MacBooks. It's a real serious issue. Do we do? Okay, we do. To Dieter, get ready. I'm During ready. the course of this ad, I want you to steal yourself emotionally. I'm going to get some whiskey. But while you're stealing yourself, consider shaving your face, Dieter. <laughs> <laughs> With products from the Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that will uh, leave your tush feeling tingly clean. Everyone loves their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. You've never smelled anything like it. Good luck finding a product that great at the store. All of Dollar Shave Club products are made of top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. You'll feel the difference. Plus, shipping is included with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products for five bucks. You can get their daily essential starter kit. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe, Charlie. That's the... the for the butt. That's for the butt. The world famous shave butter and the best razor, the six blade executive. Yeah. Keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, and anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash verge. That is dollarshaveclub.com slash verge. All right. Check it out. Here's Megan and Bajan, This Week in Culture. Hi, I'm Megan Prokmanesh, a reporter with The Verge. And I'm Bijan Steven, a culture writer at The Verge. Welcome to the Top Headlines in Culture. We have a very strange theme this week. Yeah, it's kind of, it's not about bullying, but it's not not about bullying. I'm kidding. That's, that's not really what I mean. It's really about groups of people getting together and demanding collective action. For good and bad ways. So first up, we have a piece by Megan. The headline is, ArenaNet firings cast a chilling shadow across the game industry. And the deck is, you're just waiting for the wrong tweet to end your life now. 
So tell me about it. Yeah, so this has been kind of an ongoing story. Uh, ArenaNet, who makes Guild Wars, they fired two of their employees after a spat, let's say, with a streamer on Twitter. So in this case, we're talking more about the general impact it's had on the industry, as well as the people who currently work at ArenaNet. So there's been a lot of discussion since about social media policies. Um, in this case, ArenaNet didn't have a very clear or strong social media policy, according to multiple people I've spoken with. And so there were no clear guidelines on how people should be acting online. It was kind of just be nice to people. And right, that's and not really a good measure or guideline in 2018 yeah, on post, Twitter. Yeah, post-Gamergate in a way. Exactly. So not only is this having an impact on people who work at ArenaNet, I mean, we've seen reactions from developers across the industry. A lot of developers are now rehauling their social media policies. And this is great because they're talking about their devs about how to deal with harassment or what the expectations are. And that's something that needs to be clarified. Right. You know, they could be better. They could uh, be better. You know who is being better, though, is Hollywood. So Sandra Oh is the first Asian woman nominated for a lead actress Emmy, which is progress in a way, although I can't believe it's taken this long to it get is. there. Hollywood has been around for how long? But Sandra Oh was nominated for her role in Killing Eve. It's beautiful. You should go watch Killing Eve if you haven't already. But yeah, it's kind of fucked up that uh, it's taken this long for a person of Asian descent to make it to Hollywood, one of Hollywood's biggest stages. I mean, when you think about it, it's not like there are that many Asian actors who are given the chance to be in these roles. Like you think about like the Iron Fist controversy, for example, them casting a white dude in this story that's traditionally been very exploitative. Or you think about Scarlett Johansson, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in playing the, shell. the role of a, a Japanese woman. Yeah, and she there was a little controversy about her recently, right? Like She has not learned her lesson. She has not learned her lesson. She uh, A couple weeks ago, it was announced that she was going to play a trans man, but she stepped back from the role. Scarlett Johansson decided after a sustained backlash to drop out and give the part to someone else, which I think is a really great sign. It's a yeah, good sign of progress. I mean, credit where credit is due, even if it was not as great as her initial response, I appreciate that she's kind of righted course. So let's do a speed round. Yeah. First up, a piece from our boss, TC, a big gamer. The headline is, seeing Ubisoft banned jerks in Rainbow Six is now my favorite part of the game. <laughs> That's an A plus, A plus uh, response there. Very proud of Ubisoft for that one. The background is <laughs> Ubisoft decided to start banning people for saying racist things in chat, uh, and the bans are global, so everyone can see you get banned for saying something really shitty. Bravo! That sounds like a great plan to me. So, headline: Another hastily planned YouTuber event ends in failure. Oh man. You just wrote this one. This is about, what's, it, what's that guy's name? Um, FoozyTube. FoozyTube. What happened? Is that like a disaster? Is this another YouTube disaster like Tanacon? Yes. So this guy has 10 million followers on YouTube subscribers. He's a pretty big deal. He's known for doing like prank videos and quote unquote social experiments. So he tried to play at a concert in seven days. Uh, it ended with a bomb threat. He was promising Drake to be there. Uh, Did there's Drake actually, say that's the thing. There's no evidence that Drake was ever going to be there. Drake has never responded to this man and may not even know who he is. Who can relate? <laughs> All right, what's next? Oh, this is good. The Twitch streamers who spend years broadcasting to no one. That is the saddest thing I think I've heard all day. It's pretty sad. Please tell me more that will cheer me up. Yeah, it's by our, our very good colleague, Patricia Hernandez. She found a bunch of Twitch streamers who had been just streaming to literally no people. Uh, it ends on a happy note. This, I mean, you should read the whole piece. It's a great feature. But the happy note is the one person or one person got one viewer who stuck with them, and now they're engaged. Oh, it's a rom-com. It's a rom-com. It was a rom-com the whole time. So congrats to Twitch and everybody involved. Uh, up next, we have Nathan Fillion stars as Nathan Drake in what might be film's only good video game adaptation. This is the role Nathan Fillion was born to play. I know, okay, fi I mean, Firefly, great. Serenity, great. Whatever, man. He's, he's a sci-fi guy, but... 
he looks like Nathan Drake. And that's the, all that matters from when the it comes Uncharted to acting. And they have the same first name. Like, See, it's perfect. Oh man, I watched a short film. It's so bad. It's it's not bad. It's good, but it's also bad because they needed more money to make it. And I think Hollywood should get on that right now. I'm sure they're taking notes right now. So that is it from us. Uh, for more culture news, you can, of course, check out The Verge. Come visit the culture section. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm Megan underscore Nicolette. And I'm Bijan Steven at B-I-J-A-N Steven. Make sure to tweet nice things at us. We're very kind online. And we're very soft. So please, very nice things. I love those two. Real firecrackers. But soft. <laughs> soft firecrackers. I mean, they, they, our culture team sits right in front of me in the office. Mm. And they're just all day. It's laughs. LOL. It's true. Why do they have so many more jokes? Because <laughs> we're, we're like, my dongles don't work. <laughs> and they're like, we're watching movies. It's, it's a whole different it's a whole different game. All right, Dieter. My man. You steal yeah. emotionally? Uh, yeah. So, okay. Uh, we have the 15-inch Core i9 maxed out review unit of the new MacBook Pro from Apple. Just like the top of the line. It's $6,700. Uh, so I've been playing with it. Uh, Viren Pavic, our uh, director out here, has been putting stress tests on it. And uh, we're getting ready to, you know, write and publish a processor episode. Womp, womp. Uh, and a review. And so... We were going to, today is Thursday. We shot yesterday, Wednesday. On Tuesday, a guy named Dave Lee, Dave2D on YouTube published a video that uh, basically said, uh, yeah, this thing gets stupid hot. And so the there's thermal throttling and they slow the processors down to l- slower than what their you know low rated frequency is supposed to be, 2.9, uh, because they can't handle the heat. And that's ridiculous and bad. There's, there's another YouTube video before that. And then since then... It's turned into a pretty big kerfuffle, technical term, about uh, about whether or not the uh, these Macs uh, have the right thermal signature inside and if they can actually handle the new Intel chips that are inside them. We are still working on our review. I will tell you that I'm having a hard time replicating uh, these thermal results, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. In fact, I, you know... Uh, Dave 2D is very well respected, knows his shit. So I have no reason to, you know, think he screwed that that benchmark up. I just haven't been able to get it on my end. And there's also like other benchmarking stuff going on because unless you're in a lab, uh, benchmarking is going to be, um, you know, variable and weird, and you're going to get strange outlier results all the time, and you never really know. And so it's complicated. And so a bunch of people are running benchmarks. We're watching what everybody else is doing. We're trying to run our own. We reached out to Cinebench to be like, hey, it's is this thing accurate? And they're like, you know, we don't, I think I forget the exact quote, but it was, it was basically like, we're not really optimized for these, uh, these new MacBooks um, on this benchmarking test. So that's the relatively short version. Big um, question. I can give you some of our results, but yeah. have you put your laptop in a freezer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's the other thing that he did is he, you know, it was too hot. So he put it in a freezer and it uh, ran way faster and way better in a freezer, which to be clear, like, again, I am not saying that there's not a problem here and I'm not trying to like solely defend Apple here, but you want your processor to throttle itself if it gets too hot. You just, that is what you want it to do because otherwise it will degrade the processor or break it. And so it makes sense that if you put it in a freezer, the thing will be able to run hotter because it's in a freezer. Uh, And so like you would expect it to be able to run better and faster in a freezer than not. So there's that. Uh, But that doesn't mean that it's not running too hot on on the other side. The horrible takeaway would be if this laptop, thanks to throttling in the same temperature room, 
is running slower than the last gen top of the line. That seems to be what some people are finding in their tests, that it is running slower than last year's MacBook um, because of this this heat issue. I'm having a really tough time coming to like a, a solid conclusion here that I can feel comfortable calling a review. So that's why I'm I, if I seem like I'm being a little skittish here, it's because the worst the worst result you can get in any science experiment isn't it succeeded or it failed. The worst result is inconclusive. I, this data doesn't tell me anything. And I feel like in our testing, that's kind of where we are. Because number one, you know, we're finding on Premiere Pro, which isn't really optimized for the Mac and is always slower on the Mac than it is in Windows, we're only seeing like a, we were only seeing like a 10% bump over a two-year-old MacBook Pro, which seems terrible. But then we ran a way more intensive test that was like much harder on it. And then it got up to like a 50% bump. Final Cut Pro 10, like 50% speed improvement over older laptops, like time after time after time. Um, but then, you know, you sit there and you watch the Intel power gadget and like watch the processor temperature go up and watch the pro- the frequency kind of start getting spiky and weird. And you're just staring at it and you're like, is this out of bounds? Is this completely normal? Is this not normal at all? Um, and it's just, it's super hard to really know without doing a bunch of, bunch of stuff over and over again. As yeah. far as I understand, the the newest generation of Intel processors, like in the high end, have like a kind of like a a burst mode. Yep. Like they have a high peak clock speed, but they can't. None of them can sustain it. Right. Um, and so, right. They, are you talking about Turbo Boost or beyond that? I think it's like extra turbo. <laughs> Nitro. <laughs> More turbo. <laughs> Give me that NOS. <laughs> well, so here's here's the big question for me. In uh, Dieter, I said this to you the other day when we, like Dieter, we're like on the phone at midnight. And Dieter was like, "This whole this whole thing is upside down because all the stuff was breaking." Mm-hmm. It is shocking. The one thing Apple is better at than almost anybody is managing thermals. Like they are very very good at it, mm-hmm. and they're they are. I mean, they are because they don't put anything inside of their computer. But like they they literally put themselves in a quote unquote thermal corner with the Mac Pro. And the the Whoa, most recent good... generations of the MacBook Pro uh, have had a sort of a reputation of not being super great for thermals relative to big, thick Windows machines. They have been okay. historically very good at thermals, but there has been a troubling trend. And the problem is, like, getting clear judgment on that is super hard because people are like, well, Apple only cares about making thin stuff. And then you, you end up in forums and you just watch people sniping at each other. And and so, I don't know, I I am not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt of being awesome at thermals uh, with pro devices in the past year or two. Here's what I believe in my heart. Wait, wait, I'm but sorry, I, I'm, I'm filibustering like, here. Give me my, yeah, you are filibustering. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I will two retake people the floor, <laughs> sir. Uh, <laughs> the Mac Pro, I cannot believe I'm defending this thing, was a genius thermal device if they had predicted the rise of GPUs. <laughs> <laughs> Who could have known? <laughs> so I'm just, I'll put it out there. It was a very well designed device for an alternate reality uh, that didn't come to pass. Uh, well, actually, that's, that's what I believe in my heart. What yeah. I believe deep in my heart is that this MacBook Pro and the one since this generation with the touch bar and everything was designed with the belief that Intel would deliver 10 nanometer chips that would have a lower heat signature and then these things would be amazing. But then Intel didn't and then Apple was stuck in a weird box where they have to decide are they going to go with the hot chips or not. And if we go with the hot chips, 
Uh, will this laptop be able to handle them? And so then the question becomes, if that's true, the question becomes, is uh, you know it's Intel's fault for not delivering the chips and making you know too hot chips? Sure, but should Apple have redesigned this laptop to accommodate the thermals before shipping it? The answer clearly is probably yes, but you know I don't know. Like so in my heart, I think that what they shipped this year is not what they believe they were going to ship two years ago. Two years ago, I think they believe that they're going to be shipping this thing with a brand new generation of Intel chips. Yeah, that's what and I think. I'm beating a dead horse with this, but I, this is again just Apple's like yes. It is really nice that MacBook Pros are thin, but some people need a very powerful computer that is also portable. Yeah. And so it sucks if you're Apple that you have to make a computer that's a little thicker and now you're sad and all the design team is just crying. <laughs> <laughs> but what pros some pros need to do things. Yeah. Well, I mean it I'm try, like, I'm giving Apple the benefit like you have to imagine they tested these things. Mm. They have a yeah. bunch of benchmarks on their web page mm-hmm. which presumably are based in some real testing that occurred, not just Johnny Ive being like I don't like how long that bar is. Please make it shorter, <laughs> right? Like uh <laughs> Like presumably that was real testing. Presumably they did thermal testing. This isn't. These are not the things that Apple cheaps out on, right? So the the benefit of that I'm willing to give them is there are some edge cases that you just simply can't predict. That the second you release it to people, that will immediately come out and something will happen. But at the same time. You've got to give yourself more headroom in these pro products. Who's going to find those edge cases faster than anybody? It's a bunch of pros with wacky workflows. Mm. So it's like, why don't you just give yourself the space for that to happen? And I, I don't understand. And then on top of it, a bunch of stuff with the keyboard happened this week. Oh, my God. Where yes. like an Apple support document came out that confirmed that the membrane is to protect it from dust. I fixed it as like spraying it with paint. <laughs> and they're like, yep, it's to protect it from dust. And it's like, why don't you just tell us or even just whisper it like to, you know, a trusted person mm. who's going to say yeah. it's it's right. Like, why are you playing all these games with this laptop where you you literally like don't know what's true and not about the laptop based on what Apple is telling you? That's like a huge mistake. If you're selling a pro, a sixty five hundred dollar computer that they have to depend on. And I, I do want to I've been thinking about this a little bit because I feel like I've complained a lot about Apple's products lately, but. It is scary to buy a non-Apple laptop because you go on the forums, you go in comments, you look around, and tons of people have random things break on their laptop. And you're even, with a typical PC laptop, you're even in a worse scenario than you are with Apple because there's no Genius Bar. But yeah, if Apple loses that edge of being thought of as like the obvious choice if you want something that you can assume will be reliable for a few years... That's uh, that's not good. Yeah, especially at this level of expense. So we'll see, Dieter. You're going to keep testing it. Hopefully, Apple. Yeah, says and something I'm not. Soon. And if you're listening to this, like we're 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 still planning on publishing next week. We'll see if it gets pushed back. And I'm not promising to provide like the definitive benchmark answer because I don't I don't own a lab. We're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna do real serious testing. We have been. We're gonna continue to do it. But uh, we base our review off of like the entire experience, not just like uh, the length of a bar on a benchmark graph. So. I don't want to raise expectations too much, but I do want to like start to get a sense of how real this thermal problem is. And I, yeah, 
it's it's inconclusive from my personal tests. There's a bunch of people that are pretty unhappy about it. I tweeted this. I'm just going to repeat it because I'm so proud of myself. Um, because there's logic gates inside of chips, I really want this to be called Gategate. <laughs> Teeter. <laughs> and we're going to move on. Here's okay. what I'm hoping for from your review. I'm hoping that you're like, yes, the processor throttles itself to almost unusable levels constantly, but that is more than made up for by the addition of True Tone to the touch bar. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have only, give it to we've me. only we've only turned True Tone on to like prove show that it works. You can you can you can't see it on the the touch bar. Like it's impossible. <laughs> like maybe you can see it. You can see it on the screen, but then we turn it off immediately because Viren's a video editor and needs accurate color. Hmm. Yeah, it's real. So, what if you just want a word process on the sixty seven? There are people out there. That's right. They're going to do it. They're never yeah. going to hit the throttle. They're going to be great. <laughs> All right. Uh, Roku this week announced new wireless speakers. They're a little bit strange. They only work with Roku TVs. So you like bring them in your house, you push the button, it finds a TV, automatically syncs through TV. That's cool. Hmm. They uh, don't even work with like Roku boxes. No, just the TVs. Um, <laughs> okay. Because the TVs are on the software, and then Roku's very proud that they've solved some like latency issue because they've got the software on the TV, they've got the software on the speakers. But if you plug something into the back of the TV, like a game console, where they can't manage latency, they'll just turn off, and you'll play your games through the TV speakers. Why is this an unsolved problem? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they said. So I tweeted, this seems insane. Uh, Roku got a hold of me. And said, we want to talk to you about the speakers in the future of Roku. I honestly, they also told me the product team was looking into the input situation. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't bring it up with the CEO because I doubt the CEO was like, yes, I did make a horror. We talked about a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. Check it out. Anthony Wood, he was great. So I'm just going to read the ZipRecruiter ad real quick, and then we're going to do our interview with Anthony Wood. Here we go. This episode of VirtCast brought to you by ZipRecruiter. It's hard to find qualified candidates. It takes a long time. It takes too many applicants when you have a job open. ZipRecruiter makes it easy. You can check it out right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is one of the highest rated hiring sites in America. And right now, Vergecast listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge, V-E-R-G-E. ZipRecruiter, it is the smartest way to hire. So we're here with Andy Wood, the CEO of Roku. Thank you for joining us, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. So you guys announced some new speakers. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the future of Roku. But real quick, you I think most people think of Roku as still kind of like a startup, like an insurgent. But you've been there for a while. Roku's been there for a while. You're a public company now. Tell us a little bit about the journey, like where the company is now. Yeah, well, we're the leading streaming platform in the U.S., you know, with almost 21 million active users. You know, quickly a little bit about Roku. We build a purpose-built operating system or distribution platform for television, you know, via the internet. We distribute that platform by licensing to TV companies. And actually, you know, at this point uh, in Q1, one in four smart TVs sold in the U.S. ran the Roku operating system. So that's been very successful for us and it's still growing. Uh, you know, we sell a leading streaming player uh, lineup. And that's how we distribute our operating system. But, you know, what people, many people don't really realize is we make all of, almost all of our gross profit, our, you know, our money from advertising and content distribution. So we're, we're really a service. 
service and advertising business at heart. And, uh, you know, if you just look at the history, we, 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 start, we shipped the first Netflix player in 2008. And since then, we've just had steady, continual growth as we've added more content, you know, we've lowered prices. And as, you know, more and more people cut the cord and switched to streaming to watch TV, we went, we went public almost a year ago. Things are going great. So uh, that's actually really surprising that you make most of your money on content distribution and advertising. I, you know, I asked people for questions on Twitter. That was actually one of the most popular questions is, can I just pay a fee to turn off the ads? But it sounds like that's a big piece of your business puzzle. Well, I mean, we have we have the most content, most streaming content of any streaming platform, and there's every conceivable business model is available, right? So, you know, if you want to watch Netflix, there's no ads on Netflix. Hulu, you know, you can pay a little bit extra and have no ads. So, Amazon Prime, there's no ads, but other content, there are ads, you know, YouTube, news, the Roku channel. Uh, and then there's transactional, like TVOD, where you pay to watch a movie, you rent a movie. So it just depends on the customer, you know, if they want to watch ads and or if they don't want to watch ads, how much they want to pay, you know, all those options are available. But for your revenue, when you say content distribution and ads, who pays you for content distribution and what does that deal look like? Well, when you're a content distribution platform in a television business, you make money distributing content. You know, you provide. We provide a lot of services or content partners, things to help them build subscriber bases, promote their content. You know, let customers know about what's available to watch. And all those activities, we do get paid for. So, you know, it's kind of an exchange of value. We help content distributors find customers and sign up customers and promote their content. And we get we get paid for that. In terms of advertising, one of the ways you know we get paid from content partners is uh, we get a share of their ad inventory. Yeah. We take all that ad inventory, that video ad inventory, and we aggregate it, and then we run it, uh, we sell targeted ads. You know, there's a there's a large number of Americans now that you can only reach on Roku. So if you're a TV advertiser and you know you're, you want to reach consumers while they're in the living room watching TV, those consumers are shifting to streaming, and as they shift to streaming, advertisers are following them. So. Building out a big next-generation TV ad platform is an important part of our business. That's really interesting. I, honestly, I don't think most people listening to the Vergecast or buying a Roku product really understand that that's where your revenue comes from. Is that why? Is that why you're able to keep your hardware costs so low? I mean, you have you have devices at like nineteen dollars. Is that part of the puzzle? You just want to get them out there? Yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, we don't really make money. We don't certainly don't make enough money to support our engineering organization and, and our uh, operations by and the, you know the cost of money to run the Roku service. We don't. That's not paid for by the hardware where that's paid for by our, our ad and content business. That's super interesting. So you're expanding, speaking of hardware business, you're expanding that. That's actually how we ended up on the show today. Uh, you put out a line of speakers, and I'm very interested in what Roku is doing with this new line of speakers. So you've got speakers that connect only to the Roku TVs um, over Roku Connect. Just tell me about them. What's what's the play there? What's the, what's the idea there? Right. Well, instead of saying we've got speakers that only connect to Roku TVs, I prefer to think of it as we have Roku TVs, that every Roku TV owner now has access to an awesome audio option if they want it. So, you know, we, every, every piece of hardware we sell is in the service of building our installed base so that you know so that we can execute on our business model which is to make money through advertising and content distribution so speakers are no different for us one of our big goals as a company is to uh, be the best tv platform and, and we are you know we, we're, we went from over the last handful of years we went from zero percent market share to like i said q1 this year one in four 
smart TVs sold in the U.S. ran our platform, our software, our operating system, and we wanted we we think that there's a lot of room for innovation in TVs. Now, how, so we spent a lot of time thinking about how can we make the TV experience better for our customers. And when you start thinking about that problem, one of the big issues consumers have is audio. Like you know, movies have you know big screen movies and TV shows are are mixed with great audio, but most TV, all TVs probably can't actually reproduce that audio. I mean, as TVs get thinner and thinner. The physics are just hard for speakers. The speakers in the TVs get smaller, and it's hard for them to reproduce good audio. You know, it's one of the reasons. So TV audio doesn't sound that great compared to, say, a movie theater, and it doesn't. It's often hard to even understand what people are saying because part of the dialogue range uh, for males is cut off by most TV speakers. So, but adding a sound bar or something or a home theater system certainly to a TV is, is is complicated and hard for most people, and so most people don't do it. And so one of the things, one of the problems we're trying to solve is make it super simple to connect better audio to your TV. It should be, you know, should be as simple as just plugging in a couple speakers and they auto connect to your TV and you don't do anything differently with your remote control except now that you have better sound on your TV. And so that's the reason we're releasing the, the Roku TV wireless speakers is we're trying to make the Roku TV the best TV it can be. Uh, we're trying to drive innovation there and that will cause more people to want to use Roku TVs and that will cause, you know, us to be able to sell more ads, frankly, in the long run. So that's why we're doing it. We're trying to make TVs better and we're not trying to make money selling speakers yeah you know one of the main questions i got you people see speakers they first question and this a bunch of people ask me on on twitter are you going to add spotify support you know you guys are a tv platform i'm sure you haven't thought about a spotify app but once you add speakers to the mix people want to just play music through them is that something you're thinking about absolutely i mean spotify specifically is not currently on our platform but uh, it used to be and you know i can't talk about the future but we would love to have spotify back on roku and you can assume that we're actively working on that but in general the way we think about speakers for TV are that the primary function is to work just, I'm watching TV, I want it to sound great. I want it to be easier to understand what people say. I want the better dynamic range. I want, you know, better bass. I want it to sound good. So that's the first thing. But people do listen to a lot of music using their TV. It's, you know, music apps on Roku, which we do have a lot, everything from Pandora to iHeartRadio to, you know, SiriusXM, YouTube mu music, YouTube. I mean, there's lots of music apps on Roku and people do use them to watch, to listen to music. And so, and especially with speakers, you know, better speakers connects with your TV, that'll probably even be more common. So we, are, we, ha we have built features into the products to make it easier to, to listen to music. So for example, it has Bluetooth. I mean, it's a simple feature, but it has Bluetooth. So uh, you can listen to, you know, any, any music that's on your phone using Bluetooth. We also bundle a new kind of voice remote we call the Roku Touch, which is a battery-powered remote, kind of a puck-sized small remote that you can put on, say, your kitchen counter. And if you want to listen to music, you can you can press the button and say, you know, play play country music. Yeah, it's this is the first step. Are you envisioning a larger line of home products? I mean, are you envisioning a full wireless speaker ecosystem, a, you know, an Atmos system? Are you, are you thinking that big? Well, the way we think about it is we want it to be sort of the underlying fabric that connects everything, all the audio stuff, to, especially to your TV. So we announced at CES a protocol called Roku Connect, which is a wireless protocol for connecting audio devices in, in your home, including to your TV. And that's the protocol that our new wireless, Roku TV wireless speakers use. They use this Roku Connect protocol to, you know, to connect automatically to the TV. But we also showed other features of CES, like connecting multi-room audio, being able to start listening to audio on my TV and then walk into the kitchen or a different room and continue listening to the TV show, you know, in that other room through wireless audio streaming. So we, we definitely envision that TVs will evolve to have what we call home media networks and that, you know, we want to, through protocols like Roku Connect, we want to tie everything together.
So, I mean, that's great. I, I'll be honest with you. That is, it's an ecosystem and everyone is racing to put that ecosystem in your home, right? I mean, you have, I would call them frenemies, right? Like Amazon Prime Video is on the Roku box, but they want to sell Fire TVs. They've always got Alexa devices. They do a full home audio integration, Google Play Movies. Google obviously makes Google Play Home. They make the Chromecast. How do you compete with those ecosystem vendors who are obviously important providers of video on your platform, but are also making competitive devices and ecosystems? Well, in terms of audio audio and voice, I mean, we're looking for ways to work with those, those companies' products. Um, and our strength really is that there's a lot of Roku TVs being sold every day and a lot of households have Roku TVs. And so starting with the TV and making it easy to expand from there. And then once you've done that, you know, connecting with other devices in your home makes perfect sense. But we're not we're not necessarily looking to do that, you know, at the exclusion of, of other devices that you might have in your home. Our goal is to be a open platform, work as, with as many companies as possible. But there's a lot we can do, you know, within our ecosystem and to make it. And again, our goal is to make the Roku TV the best TV there is. In terms of Google and Amazon, I mean, just generally, we've been competing with them for a long time. Like you said, they're frenemies. You know, actually, if you just look at smart TVs, for example, uh, Google started shipping Android TVs before we started shipping Roku TV, but they have very small market share. We've got almost the entire market for licensed OSs. You know, Amazon has TVs, but Roku TVs sell extremely well versus those TVs. And I think it's because, you know, those companies have taken Android and ported it to the TV, which is fundamentally a phone operating system. And we built a, a TV operating system from the ground up, and it just gives a better experience on TVs. is lower cost, better value. We have more content. So we've been competing in them with them for a long time, and we've been competing very effectively. So I want to ask you, you keep talking about the Roku TV, which is an interesting conceptual model because there isn't a Roku TV. You have a bunch of partners that make TVs, some very well-reviewed TVs. I think everyone who thinks about TVs will just tell you to go buy one of the TCL Roku TVs. They're great. But they're not your TVs. Are you thinking that you're going to make your own TV, or are you happy with the partner relationship? Or It, it seems like your business is giving the software to other vendors. But when you say the Roku TV, it's actually a, a long line of products from a variety of people. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we're not going to make TVs. We're going to continue with our licensing program. You know, when I say Roku TV, that's what we call it. You know, that's what we call our reference design. Maybe that's confusing. I mean, when I use it the way you might say Android, you sure. know, uh, the way Google talks about so Android. Do they so. ship your reference design? Do you do all the work and they, they get all the glory? Or are they doing customizations on top of it? You know, we work with, I think, over 10 different TV brands at this point with hundreds of TV models, and they do a lot of work. But yes, we I mean, we are a TV company. We design TV. So we design, we design the hardware. We design the software. The hardware is a reference design. So we, we turn it over to the TV OEM or the factory or the brand, and then they actually productize it. Uh, but we'll help them with that. You know, we help them bring up the TV factories. We help them, you know, with whatever they need help with. So we're sort of their support organization. So we provide the reference design, the software, and support. They build the TVs. They sell them. Once they're sold, and then in retail, we also provide retail support. So we, we help with retail marketing. And then once the customer buys a TV, then we take over all the software updates. So we provide you know regular reoccurring software updates, adding new features to all the Roku TVs. And so all the Roku TVs in the field do, do run the, the same software version. There's no real customization other than hardware customization. Yeah. And that is a model that you know, we've seen many platform vendors try to enact, and it has proven harder in most cases than it seems like it's working for you. What What's made it successful for you that you can actually hold everybody to the same software version on the same cadence? Uh, we do it for them. 
that's, that's, that's the trick. <laughs> that's a, it's, a, it's not a bad answer. Well, it's the same. It's the Microsoft strategy, right? Like all Windows PCs run basically the same operating system version because Microsoft does the updates. That's true. I, I guess I'm thinking in mobile where you see, you see the fragmentation. Right. So in the mobile out. world, you know, Android generally doesn't do the software updates, which is why there's a lot of fragmentation. So TVs, to me, it seems like buying the smart TV is the future. Like most people are going to buy a smart TV. They're going to get whatever OS, like you said, a lot of them are getting Roku OSs. Um, but they're going to get that OS. It's going to have most of the apps they need. The desire to buy a standalone box is dropping. Do you see the market turning in favor of smart TVs versus boxes? Or do you think the boxes are going to continue to be a, a, a strong market? We think both are going to continue to be a strong market for a long time. I mean, you know, if I had to choose, which I don't, I don't choose, but if I could say, <laughs> okay, if I could choose for a customer whether they're going to buy a Roku TV or a Roku streaming player, you know, a box or a stick, we would pick TVs because, you know, TVs is a more complete solution for the customer where we have, you know, more touch points with the customer. And the TVs are growing faster than players, but players is a, is still growing well, nicely. And it's, and we sell, you know, a lot of players every year. And especially as we start expanding into more inter international countries, players will continue to be important. And, you know, we sell a lot of streaming players to people that want to upgrade their smart TV. You know, maybe they've got a Samsung smart TV, which might have a great picture, but doesn't have the channel that they want to watch. And so they get a, they get a Roku streaming player to go with it. Yeah. Uh, I got a lot of questions about international expansion. So the first one was there's something going on in Mexico where the court said these boxes are being used for piracy. You appealed recently. They said, nope, can't sell them there. What, what's the status in Mexico? In Mexico, is um, there was a, a lower court ruling that was brought by Cablevision, a, a, a Mexican cable company, that said that uh, Roku players cannot be sold in Mexico. They can still be used. And we have lots of users in Mexico. Uh, but this court ruling said we can't sell players in Mexico, which which we believe is a complete violation of Mexican law. And so we're obviously fighting that and expect to have that ruling overturned at some point. You know, Cablevision sort of made the, the case, which I would say is a pretext, that Roku players should be banned because they're, they're used a lot for piracy. But it turns out actually that Roku players... I mean, all open platforms have pirate content on them, but pirate content on, on Roku players is actually very low. I mean, worldwide, if you look at sort of the usage on a Roku player worldwide, 99.5% of the streaming hours are, can be attributed to channels that are probably not pirate channels, and there's about half a percent that might be pirate channels. And then if you look in Mexico, it's higher. It's 8% of the content could possibly be pirate, and 92% is probably not pirated. But that's actually very low for Mexico. Piracy is very popular in Mexico, and it's lower than other competing platforms like Android, for example. So we think that actually we're one of the best citizens when it comes to piracy, and it's just a pretext. It's a cable company in Mexico doesn't like streaming as a competition <laughs> and is using any any method they can. We, we think we'll prevail eventually in that. Case. Other countries, a lot of people ask me about India. Are you thinking about pushing in, into India? Do you have a timeline there? Uh, we don't have any timeline. We, you know, we haven't announced India as a, as a country we're going into yet. But I mean, our, I mean, what I will say is that streaming is a, is a global activity and it's something that we think is worldwide and that's our we aspire to be a worldwide platform company yeah so you guys are also moving into some original content it's a thing that you're starting to do you've got a, you've got your own channel you're obviously competing with huge players with massive investments in content you know netflix spends billions of dollars amazon sends billions of dollars apple i think has allocated a billion dollars towards content how, how do you think about that just that investment and where you want it to go over time right so we're, we actually are not producing original content so that's, that's I'll explain what the Roku channel is, but but we we don't have any current plans to produce original content for the reasons you just said. 
<laughs> it's a it's a multi billion dollar business, you know, game, and and also we're an open platform for distributing other people's content. So we, you know, we are a content distribution platform. We have lots of originals on Roku by Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and others. Now, the Roku channel is a, a channel that's our own and operated channel, but its goal is to provide another outlet to distribute distribute content on Roku. So, content on the Roku channel comes from two primary sources. One is the biggest source is actually companies that already have channels on Roku, but will syndicate that content into the Roku channel so it gets uh, to provide, you know, it's just another way to, to attract viewers to watch their content. And then we also have studios that own content that distribute directly onto the Roku channel. Viewing on the Roku channel is generally incremental. So if a company has their own channel, plus they have something in the Roku channel, the Roku channel is generally incremental. So for us, it's all about how can we make it easier for consumers to find content, especially free ad-supported content. So that's what we're doing with the, the Roku channel. It's not competitive with our channel partners. It's just another outlet for them to distribute their content. So do you, you have a team of curators, editors, programming professionals who are, are picking and choosing, or it's, hey, do you want some incremental views on the show? Put it over here. There is an editorial team, but there's but it's moving increasingly to algorithms, to, you know, auto recommendations. Okay, so you're not, like, aggressively pro programming it or promoting things. You're, you're saying, put stuff here in the Roku channel. We'll promote it inside of the channel and potentially on the main interface? Yeah, in, inside the channel. So, I mean, we promote the Roku channel to drive users to it, and then once they're in the Roku channel, you know, it's it's increasingly moving to recommendations based on your personal preferences and what's popular. And so it's just another outlet for content owners to merchandise and promote their content. Yeah. Okay. I have one last big question, and then I want to do a little lightning round of, of some of these Twitter questions. The last big question is just about the design of the interface, quite honestly. You've, you did mention that, you know, your competitors are repurposing mobile operating systems. Some of them are real flashy. Because they have, you know, they're putting a lot of horsepower in their boxes, and then they're running these full OSs with these graphics layers. Yours is still very simple, and it's pretty, it's pretty direct. I think a lot of people appreciate it. But do you think about the big redesign that you need a flashier, more interactive TV experience with, you know, that enables different kinds of viewing experiences, or are you, are you kind of? dead ahead, we're going to get you to watching what you watch and get out of the way. Uh, well, there's two. I got two answers to that question. The first is that we put a lot of effort into making a super simple UI, and we're continually working on the UI and testing different concepts. And you're right. Sometimes we'll get, like, we'll get dinged for, like, oh, our UI is not flashy or we haven't updated it. We do update it. People just don't notice because we try <laughs> hard to, to, um, to, not, you know, to not make it jarring. And the result of that is we have an incredibly simple UI that gets awesome MPS scores. I think we have the best, you know, the best ratings of any of our competitors. People confuse like flashy with great, simple, easy to use. And it's hard, to, you know, it's, it's a challenge actually to stay focused on continuing to build a simple UI that customers like to use. And so that's what we do. So, so it's, a, it's purposeful. It's not like we're, you know, didn't notice that competitors sometimes have flashier UIs. We just think that they're flashier, not in a good way. And then the second answer to the question is, and also, well, just and then to add to that last one, and it's an app-based interface. So it's, you know, it's primarily about exposing apps like Netflix and the Roku channel and Hulu. Now, there are 5,000 apps on Roku and growing, and that's too many for consumers to go digging around looking for shows to watch in. And so, we do think the feature is a different UI, which is more content-focused, more recommendation-focused. Mm -hmm. And we have that UI. It's called the Roku Channel. So, <laughs> so, so, so the Roku Channel is our is our sort of sandbox for building a next-generation, you know, content-first uh, user interface. And someday, you know, when we think it's ready and good enough and has enough content in it, it'll probably, you know, become the home screen. But that's that's not going to happen right away. 
I mean, and do all your channel partners, are they ready for that future where you're sort of disaggregating their interface and putting their content, remixing it into a new UI? We'll always have apps. And even if we, even, you know, if the Roku channel became more the home screen, I don't mean literally it would become as is the home screen. I mean that the recommendation engine would become part of the home screen. But there would still be, there would still be apps where, you know, we're never going to, at least we don't have any plans to not allow partners to have apps if that's what they want to do. Well, no, I, I, I'm just looking at, again, some of your competitors, you know, Apple has the TV app, but Netflix isn't in it because they, want, they want you to be in their interface. Like, do you foresee right. that same kind of challenge coming up? Oh, yeah. Sure, absolutely. So the big guys like Netflix are going to want to have their own apps and their own user interface. But once you get past you know, Netflix and a few others, you can actually get more viewing for your content if you, you know, let someone like Roku do the merchandising of your content for you. I mean, that's what we do for a living. So um, we're better at it than most of our app partners. So there is this dynamic where I think some apps, that sort of the mid-tier and long-tail, will have to choose between sort of writing their own app or actually getting more viewing by being part of you know, someone else's content-first UI. Yeah. But we'll we'll always allow both options. Okay, I want to do this slide, Aaron, but I, I have one more kind of bigger question here. What you don't have right now is integration with one of the bigger voice assistants. So, you know, obviously Alexa, Google Assistant, Apple's got Siri. Are you going to have to do that, or can you build an entertainment, you know, TV-focused voice assistant that lives at? away from those things? Well, our belief is that, you know, voice voice assistants are great for the products they're in. We don't think voice is the primary navigation for, for television. You know, what voice is great for is when you know what you want. Like, you know you want to listen to the Beatles, then voice is great. You know, you can say, play the Beatles. But if you want to browse around, look for a movie to watch or a TV show, and you don't know what you want to watch, then voice is not is not helpful. So for TV, we think voice is, is you know, for things like search, it's useful. Um, so that's why we have voice remotes with voice input. And, we, you know, we announced the CES where we're coming out with our own uh, voice assistant focused on media playback. So, you know, hey, Roku, search for movies starring Tom Cruise, you know, those kinds of features will come to our platform. And then for music, voice is important. So, you know, like I said, we, have, we just announced the Roku Touch voice remote, and you can say, you know, play country music, and it'll play country music. Okay, here's two, three of the most popular questions. You support Dolby Vision on the TVs, but you don't support Dolby Vision on the boxes. Our viewers refer to it as all of the lights. Um, they want all the lights lit up. Are you going to add Dolby Vision to the boxes? Uh, Dolby Vision, we don't, that's, we don't announce feature products. Okay. The absolute most popular question, are you ever going to let people order a remote with custom shortcut buttons? <laughs> um, By, I'm, I'm not kidding. By far no, the most popular no, I'm, question. I'm sure you're not kidding. Uh, I was just laughing because we spent a lot of time thinking about how we could do that. Like we were thinking like, could we put like e-ink, little e-ink <laughs> displays on, on the buttons? But anyway, we don't talk about future products. We do have the Roku Touch I was telling you about before has three preset buttons that you can program to do whatever you want. So that's, so that's pretty close. Okay. And then last one, this is my favorite one. What is your... Anthony Wood, what is your personal home theater setup? You know, I had a pretty complicated home theater setup like 15 years ago, and I just threw it out because it was too complicated. I got tired <laughs> of trying to use it. Um, so right now, I don't have one, but I'm going to get some Roku TV wireless speakers. I'm really looking forward to it because they, they sound awesome. That was a layout. What was I thinking? Yeah. That was a pure layout. All right. You don't, you don't have like a, like a seven – you don't have like a crazy TV nope. guy? 7.4.12. Nope. So right now you're listening to TV speakers and you're, and you're going to get your... Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I decided it was just too hard. I got tired of the remotes. And it was just it was just too much work. Yeah, no wonder you put out speakers. You're solving your own problems. It's a gr the, the exactly. truest story finally, of innovation Finally, exists. I've got a good home theater system. <laughs> All right, and well, thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. Really appreciate it. I'm excited to get these speakers and try them out. I'm excited. I mean, I'm a Roku customer. I'm excited to watch the ecosystem expand. Um, and it's been really great talking to you. All right. All right, Paul. 
Yo. Every week, my man. Mm-hmm. What's it called? It's always called Fold the Phone. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Fold the Phone sponsored by? Well, I'm glad you asked. Fold the Phone is a <laughs> professional segment of the Vergecast, and it's brought to you by Darn Tough Vermont Socks. They're back. If iPod socks were made by Darn Tough, they'd probably still be a thing. That's pretty good. Is the ad wow. copy that I have been given by Darn Tough. That shows you the deep cuts <laughs> that these people are aware of. Made in the USA and unconditionally guaranteed for life. Use promo code VERGE at checkout for 20% off your first order at darntough.com. Very good. All right. Fold the phone. Fold the phone. It just occurred to me that Darn Tough is actually a pun. Like darning. Just now I realized it. Darning wool. Yeah. That's pretty good. Continue. <laughs> My God. Samsung will reportedly launch a foldable phone next year. So this is a Wall Street Journal report. Seven-inch display can bend in half to transform it into a wallet shape. We have been seeing folding phone rumors and patents for like my whole life. Yeah. And I just want I'm just ready. I'm just I think it's a really a really good time for a weird form factor um just to do something do something bonkers. Yeah. And there uh, who, who what's that ZTE mm-hmm. has that kind of folding phone and it's cool. Yeah. I think Samsung could do something fun. I feel like it could be like a hot what, what we need is like a razor moment. We haven't had a phone that's like so bonkers to look at. Well, I feel like Samsung, they've been curving the display, uh-huh. and where they mm-hmm. haven't gotten is just curving it all the way over that edge, it's right? Like double-sided? So the ZTE phone is like two screens, and you fold them, and they got a border. Right. Samsung yeah. is like, it's got, they just fold it, and it unfolds into a flat sheet that's a single screen. I'm like, I'm here for that. So the screen goes the, all the way around to the back, and then you yeah. look, oh, because that's the big thing is is f- actual flexible display technology. None of them can do like a crease, like yeah. a piece of paper. So it would go around. Yeah. It would be a it would be a radius. But like they're already kind of doing a radius, so you could see it. As near as I can tell from like the, some of the renders and guesses at what Andromeda was going to be, is that there would be two screens that would, but they would. This both is the Microsoft down. courier. Yeah, thing. Yeah, the Microsoft one. Yeah. And so the hinge would be there'd be no black border between them because the sc- they, they'd technically be two screens, but they'd be so close to each other when you unfold it because the screens would bend in on the inside. If that makes sense. Uh, but this sounds like it, it's a it's a single screen, which is better if yeah. they could do it. And it's been, like you said, just years that we've been waiting for one of these things to actually appear. And it's going to run Fire OS. <laughs> <laughs> With YouTube. Yeah, the whole, the dream is alive. <laughs> That's super exciting. Um, there's also S9, there's a little bit of extra fun news. There's S9 leaks. Or, uh, sorry, yeah. Galaxy Note 9 leaks. Um, S9 it exists. The Note 9 is leaking out. So there's, we're, we're coming up, you know, it's midsummer. it's kind of the doldrums. But we're, we're coming up on that period. That's phones. Uh, we reviewed the Vivo Nex with the fingerprint set. I mean, the pop-out camera. Yeah, I'm so here for the weird hardware moment to be back. The dream phone. But yeah, I just, I just think you need something that you you can't tell. You 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 can tell that it's not just like every device. Yeah. Something something bonkers. Which I guess Vivo Nex. All right, and then two last things. Uh, one, I want to remind people that Go90 is dead. Mm. <laughs> it's important to me. Uh, to uh, 
Comcast got out of the way. Uh, they they withdrew their bid for for Fox. So Disney is going to buy Fox, bring those X Men right into the MCU. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just I, I, for the low price of billions of dollars, sixty some billion dollars. Google it, can earn that in twelve days. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it, Paul. <laughs> math. <laughs> I did the math. That's going to be a, a thing, like. These companies are getting bigger, and they're going to war with streaming services. So mm-hmm. You're going to see Disney build that streaming service with those assets. At the same time, they get Hulu, or they get controlling interest in Hulu. It seems like it, yeah. Uh, at the same time, Walmart. This is my favorite little. Walmart is going to try to turn Voodoo into a Netflix competitor for eight bucks a month. I use mm-hmm. Voodoo because it uh, its HD streams are higher quality than almost any other HD streams, mm-hmm. and they have Marvel movies in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, which no one else does. So I, I'm like a Voodoo fan. They're cheap. They're good. High quality. I think I might be the only one. Uh-huh. But I, I, it's like I'm in that moment where like I have a secret, and I would prefer if they didn't try to turn it into like a bigger <laughs> company. Like just leave this thing I like alone. But mm-hmm. we'll see. But you can see all these companies. The, the race to like build the content service is is here. Who would you guys bet on? I think one of the interesting things was with the what they were talking. AT and T. Somebody from AT and T was talking. With that whole controversy of like they're going to ruin HBO, the idea that there's – in the long run, there's going to be maybe six, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Feel, it feels I mean, like Netflix it'll be, is it'll a shoe in. It'll be Netflix, whatever AT&T's Warner time HBO thing ends up being called, DirecTV something. Hmm. Hulu, I think, is either in or they're going to like completely implode. I don't know why I think that, but there's enough stuff happening with mergers and acquisitions and machinations at the top level and they have all of them have such a stake in Hulu. Mm-hmm. I just worry that like someone someone is going to get a hold of Hulu and just screw it up. But that's on the list. And then uh, you know, crackle. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube. Yeah. Like it's in that conversation, right? Like I think that's sort of the I don't know how that will break. Mm. But I think what we're seeing now is there's, you know, Anthony Wood was saying the Roku channel on Roku is the the sandbox for them to develop a, a content recommendation UI for the home screen. Mm. So eventually on some timeline, the Roku home screen will recommend content to you as opposed to just showing you a list of apps. I think everyone is headed in that direction. Where you turn on your TV and it's sh- it's it's showing you stuff it wants you to watch, uh-huh. and that it's like who owns that interface is really the ultimate question. And then that becomes another kind of bundle, where now you're just paying Roku twelve bucks a month to get a channel guide, and like you see everyone's kind of weaving in and out of that. We're just reassembling a cable bundle, and like who's going to own that in the end? And the answer is the combination of Disney, AT and T, and Time Warner. <laughs> Tim, Tim Armstrong <laughs> will somehow be involved. <laughs> Timmy, all right, take the oath. <laughs> I'd be so proud wow. of him. He spins off back out of, back out of Verizon, and, he, and he like sells it to like Sprint. Like he just, <laughs> he just keeps doing it. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week. We ran a little bit long. Thank you for sticking with us. Thank you to Megan and Bijan for this week in Internet Culture. We'll have them back. We're we're continuing to experiment with these segments. So let us know what you think. Go listen to Converge with Casey Newton. Another great episode this week. Doing great in the charts. Tell Casey you love him. If you're interested, we didn't talk about Facebook this week. Again, Casey has a great newsletter called The Interface if you want to get into that. And Mark Zuckerberg was on Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. Go listen to that. Recode Media with Peter Kafka is also excellent in the Vox Media Podcast Network. You can tweet at us. I'm Reckless. Paul's Future Paul. Dieter's at Backlon. Please tweet Dieter your MacBook benchmarks. Just whatever oh MacBook you got. 
whatever year, whatever generation, he would like to see your benchmarks. He's at Backlon. That is it for us. Thank you so much. Rock and roll. Paul. Promo code.